History, Lecture 78, Rabbi Bleiweiss. We are uh, entering the Shibu Shonim. A few last stories. As we've said before, when you get, when you uh, transition from Tanaim to Amoraim, from Amoraim to Savoraim, Savoraim to Gonim, and so on, these are not, it's not that somebody woke, woke up one day and said, hey, welcome to the Rishonim. Um, it, it was not so clear when one stopped and the other one started. Uh, but probably the following four names I'm going to mention today are considered um, are considered Gaonim. Probably the Rif, uh, more than anybody else, is considered the border between the Gaonim and the Rishonim. The great Rav Yitzchak Alfasi of Fez, Morocco, is seen as is maybe the transition point. But okay, it's something around. Uh, this one really does. You can associate it with the uh, turn of the millennium. Uh, here, the Christian calendar can has some relevance that. Around that time, around the 11th century, we start thinking about the Rishonim. And your question, which is really great, which is? Well, I was wondering why the, why the Gonim don't have commentary. The why there are formal commentaries like a Rashi on the Gemara. And that, I think we should understand in the, in the, in the ongoing motif that we have in history of Yeridas Hadoros, or Niskatnu, uh, right, the, 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 the decline, the steady decline of the generations, we're still holding in the time of the Gaonim where they could take a daf of Gemara and understand it on its own terms. And the Masora was sort of implicit, was, was, was included in that, uh, in the whole package. And the reason, usually this is the case, why are commentaries written, why are uh, halachic codes written, usually to respond to a perceived need. So Rashi comes around soon enough in, in the 11th century. Rashi's going to come around responding to that perceived need. The people didn't get it anymore, so that's why you needed a Rashi. Well, it must be that up until there, or you know, close to up until there at least, uh, they, they really didn't need such a commentary. Um, among other things, there's a, there really is still an oral tradition. So if you didn't get it, but you didn't learn it, Today we're so independent, and people kind of you know do it themselves. And now you can buy an art school and be a completely self-taught, what they call an autodidact, which is really not true and not 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 correct. People, we need each other, and we need rebbe's to explain things. Even if you have art school, art school often misleads, and so you you really need living, breathing ishmipi ish masora type um, transmission. And they had it. They they were living that. That was that was just a part of their reality. So you know, they, Rashi was part of the package. I mean, what was you know we perceive as Rashi was the running comment. And, and Rashi, of course, is going on his rebbe's. Remember the Kuntras of Rashi, this famous notebook. Well, that was a repository of a lot of this oral tradition that explicated the Talmud. Yeah. Speaking of autodidacts and, and Arif, I was reading a uh, a biography on on Rambo, and they said that whenever he quotes my teacher. Yes. He's almost always quoting the Rif, even though Rambam. Rambam, even though even though that's it, usually understood as the Rimigash. I heard both, but the Rif is the main one. And uh, the, well, we'll see. If you're keeping tabs, and anybody who wants to draw a nice, uh, like Rav Arya Carmel style flowchart of of the Gedolim and how they interconnect uh, in the times of the Gaonim and to the Rishonim, that's actually would be a very useful tool. I, uh, if anybody feels like taking the time to doing that, I, that would be a really great, great exercise. Um, and we'll see they're all interconnected, but it, I mean, it, it's where, where do you, where do you get that from? It's, uh, he, he has a, he has a story. Certainly the riff, the, there's no question that the riff plays a major role in the Piske Halach of the Rambam. I, I mean, but, what but he said was... He, Rambam didn't learn from the riff. Right, right. That, that's what it said. So it was weird that most of his stuff from the riff, but they said that because Rambam was at such a high level, uh-huh. that he was actually, uh, most of his sources he takes from the riff. Well, that's true. That I'm going to say too, but that you, you said something else. You said, you said that my he's, teacher, my teacher is always that. I thought my teacher means the Rimigash who gets it from the riff. But okay. I, it's not a major difference, really, because right. it's... Yeah, correct. Did I miss, did you talk about the in this We did. Uh, no. We also, yeah, we did. We did talk about, uh, I mean, introductory kind of comments. We also talked, yeah, we got there yesterday. But as I always say, I don't know if you take, it, take me up on this, but um, usually when I get home, I, one of the first things I do is to post it up. So you're welcome to go and encouraged to go and look it up. Uh, tomorrow we don't have our class. Thursday, Bezrash Hashem, I'm going to be rushing back from the old city from guiding, and I, Bezrash Hashem will be in Mincha, and then afterwards we'll have our class as usual. Um, the next figure I referred to yesterday, but I didn't tell a story. It's a great story, and I would think probably familiar to most of you. The, 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 his name is Rav Amnon of Mainz, 
Mainz being one of the Shum, three communities of Shum in the Rhineland. Uh, he was a Gadol in Tyra. He was a wealthy man. Uh, he's described as being a handsome man. He lived um, sometime in the 11th century. That means the, ten, the, the you know, ten hun- the thousands, thousand years ago, in other words. Um, and the story is brought down in some sources, including the, the Orzarua brings it down. Uh, as was increasingly common, and we already saw this with the stories of Rabbeinu Gershom, Mo'or Hagola yesterday, that was increasingly, the reality is the Jews are being forced to convert. Some resist, some succumb. They went after Gedolim, and Rav Amnon was a, a classic example, and he resisted. And to get them off his back one, 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 one instance, he finally said, okay, give me three days to respond. Now, he wasn't being serious. He had no havamina that he was going to convert to Catholic, or accept Catholicism, but he just, you know, in a lapse of judgment, he said, I, you know, I, I need some time to think about it. And immediately after he says that, he experiences intense remorse, regret. What have I done? How have I even implied that I might even consider this wacky, that wacky religion out there? This is the story. Right. And it's, you, that's why it's a familiar story. It's often reasonably the subject or figures into a Rav's address, a good Torah given on either Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. Uh, it's certainly the story is recounted. If you have an art scroll, Machsor, you can see it recounted in the footnotes of the, of the Sidur. I'm giving you a, a, a condensed version. On the third day that he was supposed to come back, he doesn't as his attempt to, to make tshuva for uh, even implying that he would uh, consider converting. Um, and when they force him, he has no choice. He, he comes, he explains, and the, the king, the non-Jewish king, um, threatens him and says, uh, you will convert. And if you won't convert, we're going to start amputating your various limbs one by one until eventually you'll agree to convert. And Rav Amnon remains steadfast. He refuses. And uh, after the first arm and the second arm, and then both of his legs are amputated, um, they, uh, they thought that they'd broken the man, but he refuses till the very end. And um, a, bleeding, a bleeding sick man is carried to Shul on Rosh Hashanah without any of his limbs. Uh, he asks them to bring it. He asked them for permission to lead the, the Holy Kedusha of Rosh Hashanah. He does, figuring into the, the introduction of the Kedusha, he recites his own, his own uh, tefillah that he composed, Unasanetokef, the one who gives uh, power and weight to this day, and uh, very, very uh, central tefillah that, that we, and, and poignant one that introduces the, uh, the immensity of the moment and the... Um, the grandeur of the Kedush of accepting the king on our, on, on, upon ourselves, coronating a Kodesh Baruch Hu, and after he completes Unasanetokif and Kedusha, his neshama leaves his goof, and he, he dies. And um, where, where, where this is in Mainz, one of the Shum communities, Spires, Verms, or Vermes, and, um, and Spires, Verms, and uh, Mainz. Yeah, and Mainz. Uh, are the three are the three communities and um, he later on we told we, we mentioned the, the whole Colonimus famous family the the Ashkenaz Nasora went through them one of them Rav Meshulam uh, was a contemporary and Rav Amnon appears to him in a dream and teaches him the Nusach of Unasanatokef and that's how we have it and we've incorporated it into our own tefillah yeah I guess this probably isn't known but. I'm um, guessing because it was outside of um, Israel, Kutlaret. Yeah. They uh, kept two days of Rosh Hashanah. Well, Rosh Hashanah, you know, we keep two days. Right. Right. In Eretz Israel too. Because of the Sadducees, right? No, because long before then, it was actually dates back to Shmuel and Navi. Oh, okay. That was the Kutlaret. We even talked about that here. Uh, no, no, it was a long time before. Rosh Hashanah is different because it falls on the new moon. It's a whole different discussion. But, but do we know if he died the first day of Rosh Hashanah or the second day? Because how is he, would he be buried on the... That's another, that's a technical kind of a question. Lichora, based on the story, it seems the first day. But he'll be buried afterwards. So. Uh, we've mentioned the figure of Rabbeinu Hananel. He's a Gaon. 
he's the first running commentary, Perush, on all of Shas. Uh, I showed you his picture yesterday. In the, uh, on the text of the Gemara, he's the, usually the very slender commentary around it. So it was a complete commentary. Today, some of it's been lost. Uh, what we have are arguably the most popular starring that are learned today in the world, Moed, Noshim, and Ezekiel, retain Rabbeinu Hananel, but you don't have it everywhere. Um, what is the basis of his commentary? He sticks closely to his own Rebbe. Uh, his teacher is Rav Haigaon, and he brings the Masorah from Rav Haigaon. Yeah, so you have to realize this. When you're reading the Perush of Rabbeinu Hananel or of Rashi, or really of any of these great luminaries, they're not making it up, and they're not coming up with original ideas. It's true, they're adding their own personal imprimatur. They have their own ideas in Chidushim and way of formulating ideas, but the basis of their commentary is based in a previous tradition that they're now finally recording. So well, that's what that's you know when you hear a comment like Rabbi Nachanala brings from Rabbi Haigon, Rabbi Haigon didn't make it up either. He was simply the his generation's leader in the repository of the tradition up until that point. Yeah. And, and Rashi's shot for uh, the Chumash, he received that from his teacher. Sure, he had that. Now Rashi only Rashi could come up with Rashi, but it's not based in on a, it's not original per se. They're all coming from a tradition. Uh, often Rabbeinu Hananel, anybody learn it? Anybody uh, make a habit of, of glancing at the Rabbeinu Hananel? He'll often, in his commentary, tell you what's going on simultaneously. He, he, it's, it's on the Bavli, but he'll tell you what's going on simultaneously over in the Yerushalmi. You know how that works? You ever take out a Bavli and the Yerushalmi and match them up? They don't always match up, but you have the same Mishnayos. And if there's a Bavli and the Yerushalmi on the same Mishnah, sometimes you have complementary or sometimes uh, you know, different kinds of sugyas around the same Mishnah. And of course, they inform one another. And so Rabbeinu Hanana, one of the things he does is tell you, oh yeah, and there's an idea in the Yushami that you'll find here in the pages of the Bavli that's really instructive, that really opens up a whole new dimension of our sugya. Uh, so that's one of the great values of learning his Perush. Uh, he wrote a Perush on the Torah. That too is mostly lost. We're going to hear a lot of that. These are the, these are the days, the early the late Gaonim, early Rishonim, and throughout, uh, where there are a lot of fantastic works written, many of which were lost. Uh, but that doesn't mean they're totally lost. We keep saying this too, that others who had their works were influenced, often cite them. Uh, and in this case, Rabbeinu Hananel's Perush in the Chumash often makes its way in a later Rishon named Rabbeinu Bechayim. And he'll quote Rabbeinu Hananel's Chumash, uh, and others also quoted too. Um, he was Rebbe, remember he, he traveled around, but he led in Korayan in Tunisia. Uh, he also Wait, seems... They, they were there, right? No, he's, you missed the whole story yesterday, two of the four captives. Big day yesterday, the four captives, how Torah spread and bubble, bubble declined. Were, eventually they were Many years later, but there's a Jewish community even till today in Tunisia. Um, the, uh, I mean, at, at this point in history, it's probably the most prominent that it'll ever be. Uh, and we'll hear it a couple times now. Uh, so he was in Korayan. Some say he, had, for at least one period, if not for a longer time in his life, he lived in Italy. Tostos, for example, referred to Rabbeinu Hananel as Ish Romi, a man of Rome. But that's not shocking. These are days where there's increasing mobility and the possibility that people lived in more than one place at different junctures in their life uh, is, is very real at this point. Uh, two more figures, two more contemporaries. Rav Nisim ben Yaakov, also still considered a gaon. His dates are 990 to 1062. He also learns in Cairoan. Uh, in, in the yeshiva, he learns with his father, Rav, Rav Yaakov Gaon, and he learns with Rav Hushiel, Rabbeinu Hananel's father. So everybody's integrated. They also, for a period in their lives, went back to Bavel and learned with Rav Haigon. So they really have the best, among the best of all the great uh, uh, leaders of the, Torah gen of the Torah world in this, in this generation. He was very close then with his contemporary, Rabbeinu Hananel. They were both born the same year, in 990. He was close with Shmuel Anagid. In fact, Shmuel Anagi's son marries Rav Nisim's only daughter. Right? That stuff happens in the world today as well. With the Gedolim often, I mean, you want a good shidduch for your son so, or your daughter, so you often have to marry the, another Gedol's son. The, the story is told about um, 
the Rebetzin, who's, I think her, her father is Rav Meliashiv, and her father-in-law was Rav Shlomo Zaman Arbach, and she went to the butcher to pick up some meat, and they had a certain cut, but there was something complicated on the cut of meat that she saw, and she was certainly an expert in a lot of the halachos, and the seller saw this woman pausing and indecisive, and he said, is there something wrong with the cut of meat? She said, well, uh, I'm not sure. It seems to me that my father would accept this cut of meat, but my father-in-law would not. And the butcher said, well, why don't you just call up a posek? True story. Uh, so, um, so in any case, the Gedolim had their children marry one another. He, Rabbeinu Nisim, will be one of the Rif's teachers. And at the risk, I really am trying not to bombard you with too many names, and I've kept back several names, but some of these figures are very important for the, for the Messiah, for the, for the transition, transmission of the Torah, so I, I mentioned these figures. Um, he was, he's often referred to not as Rav Nisim, but, but by his, com- he has another commentary on the Talmud called the Mafteach. He's referred to as Hamafteach, another early figure in the, in, the, in the explication of our great Talmud. Um, he also has a very lively correspondence. We have some of these letters with almost all the names that I just mentioned, Rav Haigon, Rav Hananel, Rav Rebbein Hushiel, Shmuel Anagid. Uh, and what we see in this period is there's an increasing communication between the East and Bavel and the West, North Africa, Spain. Uh, Torah is integrated, there's a fluidity. Um, and since I mentioned his name, uh, I'll mention the really unusual figure of Shmuel Hanagid. He was a little bit younger. His dates are 993 to 1056. He was a student in Spain of Rav Moshe ben Hanoch. If you remember the, one of the four captains from yesterday, uh, he would become the next Rosh Hashiva. He was apparently a very impressive figure. He was worldly and fine and refined and... Um, not only Jews were impressed with him, but at the time, the local king, the king of the Berbers in Granada, was so impressed that he appoints Shmuel Anagid as a statesman. Uh, later on, he's going to rise and be what's called the vizier, which is, I said yesterday, like a prime minister position. And uh, among his jobs, one of his, one of his duties is he is the head of the army in Granada. Uh, one of those times in history, in my separate class that I collected on Jews in power, Shmuel Anagi is a chapter, or uh, gets a little excerpt because he's one of the unusual Jews who just by force of personality and personal greatness, he arises uh, in the non-Jewish world and becomes a man of significance, and where we find, unfortunately, many examples of people in power, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we'll talk about them, who do not rise to the occasion who are much worse for the Jews because they're in power. As uh, recently, as just a few years ago, uh, Nixon's privately recorded sessions were publicized, and on tape, uh, it is a tape, not a CD, uh, on tape they have Henry Kissinger, that wonderful Jew, that lover of Israel, (coughs) um, saying to, when they were discussing what to do about all those Jews caught behind the Iron Curtain in the former Soviet Union, and they wouldn't let them out, if you remember the whole discussion of the Refuseniks. So Kissinger was caught on tape telling Nixon and his, his supervisors, he, and he was, he was the Secretary of State in America, he said, what difference, what, is, what difference does it make to us in America if several hundred thousand or million Jews in the Soviet Union go to the Gulag Archipelago, go to the gas chambers? That's not our issue. Wait, is that any more nuance if he hated Israel, or I mean if he hated Jews? Because, like, that's it, consistent with his whole ideology of, like, real politics and, like, realism. It would be. So, I use him as an example, but we have, unfortunately, many examples of this, where what, the, what you find, and I think that this is pretty evident here, where the Jew is more interested in actually suppressing his Judaism and, be, and, and bending over backwards to show, no, I, I, you know, my loyalties are not at all to the Jews. Look, look at what I'm willing to do. I'll, I'll even sacrifice. I'll throw the Jews to the wolves as a way of maintaining my own position. And 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 and, and uh, you know, and, and taking care of my own uh, neck, as one finds with him and with others. So Shmuel and Nagid, Baruch Hashem, is a big tzaddik and very much an exception to that rule. Uh, he's described as never, through all the years that he maintains authority and power, he never loses his um, his basic anava. He's a very humble individual. That's hard to be. He's one of the Gdoliador Torah. He's one of the most powerful men in Granada, and uh, and he remains. He retains his humility. Uh, go figure. They ask how um, 
the legend about Sir Moses Montefiore, a different figure that we'll learn about in the 19th century, how he could maintain his unbelievably humble, simple outlook. And uh, he said that his secret was every morning, they, he made sure that they prepared his, his, um, his arrow, his casket that he'd be buried in, and he lay down in it for a few moments. And that was a good way of reminding him of what he had to do in this world and that he shouldn't let any of the uh, trappings of honor and glory <coughs> fool him. It's not about this world. It's all about what we do for the next world. And apparently great men like Shmuel Anagid are able to keep that in mind so he doesn't lose his humility. He doesn't forget any of his learning either. He remains very very much a Talmud Chacham. And probably one of the famous stories of all history and certainly the story, if you know about Shmuel Anagid, is told, I think it's even in our even our Hebrew book in Hayasod, they tell, a, again, a distorted version of the story. But here Here's a great story, but first, go ahead. Uh, Montefiore, we're, we're going to talk about him tomorrow? No. Montefiore, he's 19th century. No, no, not tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow. Oh. Not so much, he's not part of the Shemitah story. No, Rothschild. Oh, Rothschild is central in that story, not Montefiore. Um, yeah, we'll get to that. Okay, so the story goes like this. An Arab, he's walking in the streets of Granada with the king, with the Berber king, and an Arab curses him. And the king is outraged, and he, he turns to his vizier, and he says to Shmuel Anagid, he says, I want, to, I want you to be in charge of this. You will ensure that that man's tongue is cut out of his mouth. Um, and after they finish their walk, Shmuel goes about his business, and he, instead of ordering the removal of the man's tongue, he has all of his men send the man generous gifts and money. And the Arab gets the gifts and the money, and he says, who's this from? And they say, Shmuel and Nagi uh, sends this to you and hopes you have uh, success and good health and good fortune. And uh, later on, I'm cutting out some of the story, they're walking again. Shmuel and the king are walking, and they pass by, and the Arab comes out, and he showers blessings on, uh, on the king and then on Shmuel and Nagi. And the king is incensed, and he said, I thought I told you uh, that you were supposed to cut out his tongue. Why was my order not fulfilled? And Shmuel, not missing a beat, responds, I did follow your, your order to the last uh, word. I cut out his evil tongue, and I replaced it with a good one. And, uh, okay, so we learn lots of Musr in this story. What's that? That part of the story is never included because the story has to end with a flourish, don't you know? That's how stories are supposed to end. I don't know. I wasn't there. This is how it's told. Some of these are legendary. I can't prove it was true. But it's good muster, no? Right? Where's it brought? Don't know. Go look it up. It's in all the books. Um, but it's great Musser. And these are the stuff, this is the stuff that whether it happened or not, it becomes part of our collective cultural consciousness. That this is the way we treat people. And you wanna you wanna fix somebody, you wanna you wanna deal with evil people, so you deal with them by, by being gentle and sweet and kind. Why? Because Torah, we describe Torah, its ways are ways of peace and pleasantness. And so we strive for the same. And um, it doesn't always work out as, as, as uh, you know, happily as in some of the stories. But often, we surprise ourselves, it really does. Now, in the end of the, the, end of the story, the king dies. His son is characterized as being very lazy, not quite fit for the job. He inherits the throne. Shmuel is one of the senior advisors, and the, this, the son needs him now because he can't really do the job. So Shmuel ultimately becomes everything but the king. He's the virtual ruler over all of Granada. He takes advantage to help the Jewish people. He builds a large shul. He builds a yeshiva. Uh, he is, if you remember, we talked about um, Rav... Rav uh, um, what did we talk about? We talked about... Um, excuse me, all the names. Rav Chazda Ibn Shaprut, who was also, didn't quite have the uh, prominence of Shmuel and Agi, but also used his power to help Jews. So we know that the, true, the same was true. Shmuel and Agi, he would use his power to help Jews around the world. We have um, copies of his letters that he exchanged with Rav Haigon from Bavel, uh, Rav Nisim down in, uh, in Tunisia. Uh, he was he was very much he was involved with helping with Shlomo Ibn Gavirol, who we're going to learn about soon enough. Um, now he is assumed to be the author of an early classic, what's called the Mavo the Talmud, which is a great introduction to the Talmud. You can find it also in this little helpful book that I referred to, Ravaria Kermel's 
uh, aiding Talmud story, and, and you'll see, you know, Bayit Shmuel and Nagid, some debate its authorship, but okay, we can, we, can, we can accept the possibility at least that Shmuel and Nagid indeed was the author of that introduction. And we said his son, Rav Yehosef, marries Rav Nisim's daughter. Yehosef was his name, a variation on Yosef. Uh, the, the, he marries Rav Nisim's daughter, the, the Mafteach's daughter. And when Shmuel Anagi dies, the son, Rav Yehosef, takes over as the new Nagid, which is a, a term of, of, of honor and power. Um, and uh, in his, his life ends tragically. There are, there's a rebellion by Arabs and Berbers against, and, and they fight and they attack the Jews of Granada. 4,000 Jews are murdered, including uh, Rav Yehosef and the daughter of Avnissim. And this is something that's just gonna, it's gonna, I don't know, I mean, unless you develop a heart of bricks, uh, you know, or thick skin, history's gonna break your heart. Uh, You just keep finding these great holy people who uh, sometimes whole families, whole villages, whole cities are just completely wiped out and there's nobody left. And uh, what you have to say about such things is that, um, you know, it gives us, it should give you, it should, it should feel, that's not, that's not too distracting or anything. Uh, it, sh- back, back there, Daniel. Um, so, well, appreciate of life, but I was going to be more specific, this appreciate of life. It should make you realize how important you are. Because, you know, like if you think about these great Jews, some of them don't have a legacy, at least not in, in living progeny. They have no kids left. And they're no descendants, but we're left. So we're kind of, we kind of have to do the job. We have to make them proud. If not us, then who? Um, this is a period during the time of the Rishonim. The Spanish Jewish world is flourishing. We said this yesterday. We're in the heart of the golden age of Spain. It's not, so we don't simplify, oversimplify. It's not consistently uh, golden, but it's generally very good. Arguably the most liberal, the greatest freedoms are enjoyed, the greatest civic <coughs> freedoms are enjoyed by the Jewish people uh, until America, until the United States. Um, in contrast, the Ashkenazim are in a colder climate in every which way. Uh, they, I mean, it's weather-wise, they're, it's, they're freezing up north in France and Germany in contrast with the Mediterranean uh, um, <coughs> environment in, in Spain but it's colder. They endure much greater hardship, harsher anti-Semitism. Later, we're gonna hear about the Black Death. It's gonna hit the North worse than it does the South. The Crusaders, there's gonna be relative oppression. The Spanish Jewish community in general was much wealthier, much, much, much more successful in their, in their careers. The North, the Ashkenazi world, much more impoverished. The Spanish, the Sephardi Jewish world, we think of as being known for creativity, and a cultural expansiveness, that kind of makes sense. Because we talked about the Arab cultures being a very rich culture in, uh, in the Iberian Peninsula, so it makes sense the Jews would have that too. And indeed, we find lots of P.U.T. on the stretch, lots of P.U.T., lots of Jewish philosophy. Not all these things are, are necessarily positive. Well, here there's a negative side to this. Um, but there are also Talmud Chachamim in Spain, no question. Uh, I would assert not that it's a competition, but if you had to line up major names in the Sephardi world during the period of the Rishonim versus major names in the Ashkenazi world, um, I think there's a longer list of Sephardi. A prominent Sephardi Gedoli. Well, we can do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. But Rashi's Ashkenazi. Yeah, exactly. Okay, right. If you have, I mean, again, how, how are you going to weigh them in? Well, there are a lot more. What the Bali Tosma? I have a long estimable list. We'll have to go on, but it seems to me that it's certainly a, a, a very long list in the Sephardi world. I think that's going to turn around when we get to the period of the Achronim. We're going to start to hear a lot more of the Ashkenazim and maybe less of the Sephardi. Again, it's not a competition, but these are the facts on the ground, and then we'll hear some nafkamina from such a some such a thing. How how that influences the the uh, tradition transmission of of, of Torah. Um, you know, the Ashkenazim, as a general rule, are more inwardly focused because they're living in ghettos and there isn't much of a world, there isn't much of an integration outside. Um, they, their job is to preserve Torah in an otherwise hostile environment. The Sephardi Jews draw more from the external culture, sometimes to their detriment. We've already, yesterday we mentioned, we, we met Dunash and Menachem and their intense debate over Hebrew grammar, which we saw was not just about Hebrew grammar, but about how much you allow the outside world to influence and to creep in to, uh, to, to Jewish consciousness. So these are all very much live 
dynamic issues in the in as as we reach this period called the Rishonim, uh, and as I mentioned before, arguably the figure that represents the turning point more than anybody else is the Rif. The Rif states are generally understood he lived between 1013 and 1103. His full name Rav Yitzchak Alfasi, Alfasi from Fez, Alfasi Fez from Fez, Morocco, a great city in Morocco. Uh, he had now he traveled too. He learned in Cairo and in Tunisia with under the Mafteach, under of Nisim and Rabbi Nachmanel. So he had great rebbe's coming from a tradition. Um, he also that those are his major rebbe's. He also one of his you know it's a good question historically. How did our Gdolim achieve their greatness? In the case of the Rif, his story was he studied for ten years in his father-in-law's attic. Uh, and as a result, at the end of the ten years, he produced his masterpiece, the Sefer Halachos, on much of Shas, not all of Shas. It covers the three big um, sedarim that most people learn today: Moed, Noshim, Nezikim, which we've already said are the dominant ones because they seem to be very relevant to Halacha the Maisa, not just those in other sedarim. He also has his commentary on Brachos. Menachos, Chulin, which contain many relevant halachos uh, for, for our life in Gaulus. Um And it becomes, it's seen as the seminal, seminal work on halacha for the Sephardi world, but not just the Sephardi, but certainly it'll influence the Ashkenazim as well. Here's the riff. I did this in my Gemara class recently. A few of you, half of you, more, you know, more than half of you, uh, were there. We opened up the back of the, the, the Dape Harif in the back. And you'll notice it looks kind of like the page of the Gemara. In fact, often in the Rift, you have whole chunks of the Gemara quoted verbatim. Maybe one or two stray words or spellings or something that, differenti- that, that, that differ from the original Gemara. But that's what he's doing. He cuts out. His goal in his commentary is to pare down the Gemara to the necessary raw core of what his contemporaries would need to learn it as a halachic manual. How do I, what's the practice, what's the, so he often gets rid of a two-sided discussion, eliminating the whole position that he doesn't poskin like, and he'll only present the view that he accepts as a, as, as a full view. Certainly that he skips almost always the agudic discussion, he skips almost always the halachos relevant to Eretz Yisrael, because he's writing for a gullus, a diaspora-minded audience. Are you? Um, was it this... <laughs> The Rif, we'll see. I'm about to say that he's he major. He is a major influence on the on the Shulchan Aruch, and I'll explain how. Also, wouldn't he? Wouldn't it have been a lot easier for him to just not rewrite the Gemara and write up the Shulchan Aruch What was his goal? His goal was. Uh, uh, I would I would explain the Rif like this. Wouldn't have been easier to write his own simplified code. Um, you could, and there are advantages to that. It certainly makes it e- more user-friendly to have a separate code. I-, I would say the riff might respond to that by saying that um, he wanted to encourage people to learn the original text. There's something of, there's something sacrosanct, something of kedusha in the actual text of the Gemara. I, but you're, let's say, he's thinking about a more ignorant contemporary, somebody who doesn't have proper skills and background, how can he simplify the Gemara in a way that the person can kind of be learning Gemara, but in a more accessible way? That's what he's thinking. Everybody's writing a book trying to figure out, okay, how can I, what's my objective here, and how can I give that over in the most effective way? I would say that was his objective. He will add related sections sometimes from other mesechtas when the discussion is relevant. He'll at, insert his own brief commentary when he has comments to make. He's very, a very humble person. Uh, he also has, he also paskins, and he'll insert his psak halacha when, it, when it's relevant. Um, the Rambam describes him, and here, I don't know if this is overlapping our earlier discussion, the Rambam says that the riff supersedes all gaonic codes. Wow. 
Them's had praising words, right? That's that's kind of what you want, I guess, on the movie posters where they say, you know, uh, and the New York Times says the best, finest, right? So you have the Rambam says greatest hits. So when you get an opprobrium like the Rambam's, his work supersedes all Gaonic codes. What you can understand from that is that he is the repository of the Gaonic's greatest hits. And if you wanted to know the greatest wisdom to come from that whole period, you learn the riff. And, then, and, and that's, that's authoritative. And, and the Rambam explains, he says, because it contained all the laws necessary that the people needed practically in their days. In fact, the Rambam says that he follows the riff everywhere he deviates in only 30 places. And perhaps that's what you have in mind. But not that he's a direct said, rebel. That's what, that's what they said uh, after. But then uh, there was a comment that said that he actually, uh, if you actually count how many times... It's closer to 60. So. Right, right. That's what the Rambam says, only 30 places, but, but the Rambam, right. Sometimes people argue on that, and they said that, no, he deviates more than that. But okay, 60 places is not so much either, relative since the Rambam covers all of Gantz Shas. So, you know, it, 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 Riff is a major influence, but now, now, now listen to this. And Ari, I'm going to connect it to your, your question a couple minutes ago. Given the extent of the influence of the Yad, of the Rambam's Mishnah on the Shulchan Aruch, which till today is the authoritative uh, code of Jewish law. So what you can say based on that is the Rif is one of the most dominant influences on halacha till today. Okay, so you can you should appreciate who the Rif is, right? If the Ram if, if the Rambam only deviates in thirty and let's say sixty places, and the Mechaber often just comment just takes verbatim whole chunks from the Mishnah Torah and copies them in the Psaq of the Shulchan Aruch, then actually you really do have a straight line. <coughs> Meiri refers to him as the greatest posek. What he Ever? does is, what's that? Ever? That's what the Meiri says. Of course, you know, that's from then, maybe we have since then, but that's how the Meiri understands it. Um, the Rif opens up Shas to a wider public. People who previously could not learn now have a new accessibility. Um, the Beit Yosef, the, uh, the, the Rabbi Yosef Karo's commentary on the tour, tells you how he develops his own system of Isaac. He says he takes, it's a very important idea if you've never heard this before, he'll take three pillars, three pillars, and um, use them to paskin any given issue in the Torah. Um, he, uh, meaning, in other words, he takes three great Rishonim, and whatever they, however they come out, two to one or three to zero, that's how the halacha is going to follow. They are the three people representing the Ashkenazi world. Oh, he's the Rashi. The Rush. The Rush, Rush Asher, representing the Sephardi world, the Rif. And then the Rambam is the third pillar because he represents the Rambam. And if you're a Rambam, you can represent wow, yourself too. That is very self-explanatory. Doesn't it? Don't you think? If you understand the Rambam, Rambam no other comment necessary. <laughs> but you hear what I'm saying? Yeah. It's not just tongue in cheek. It's really true. If you're the Rambam, you get your own. You get you're you're one of your own pillars too. Does somebody be of Rambam genius? Um, yes, and I think he's sitting to your right. What I'm saying is that Yemenite Jews, to a to varying degrees, we're going to talk about the Yemen, the holy Yemenite you Jewish community. Yemenites more than anybody else uh, would say, not quite as you phrased it, but that their halachic practice is uh, heavily, heavily influenced, almost exclusively influenced by the piskei halacha of the Rambam. Um, but everybody is, and what we're going to see, especially in the 20th century. Uh, this, is not, this is not a class in the Rambam, but we're going to get to the Rambam soon enough. Uh, we, the, 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 um, some of the great recent Gidolim have their magnum opus, their personal masterpieces, are commentaries on the Rambam's Mishitur. So that goes to tell you how big, how big an influence the Rambam is. But back to the Rif, who, who was an influence on the Rambam. We know in 1553, one of the many bands, the Italians' band, the learning of Talmud. Jews are not allowed to learn the Talmud in 1553. So we know that, that then, because you know Jews always are crafty and, and uh, tenacious, we find a way. The Jews then say, okay, we can't learn the Talmud. Okay, pass over the riff. So learn the riff instead. Ha. Um, an example of the riff's godless. In his commentary in the Gemara Neruvin, 
he brings a stringency from the Yushalmi. This is, get this idea. This is, this is a great insight into the flow of halacha. The Rif quite, uh, quotes a Chumrah from the Yushalmi. What is the Chumrah? We know we're not allowed to dance or play instruments or clap or tap in a rhythmic way on Shabbos or Yantan. Right? Shemi Yitak and Klishir. Maybe people will come to fix an instrument, so we don't do that. That's familiar. The Yushalmi brings an extra Chumrah, says we're not even allowed to make non-musical sounds on Shabbos. Shemi Yitak and Klishir. So according to the Yushalmi, is Asr. Knocking, not musically, would also be prohibited. And, um, and the Rift brings this down. And Paskin's not like that. The Bavli is Mekil, and the Rift explains why. And this is a great idea. If you get this one down, you'll learn a lot. He says, Hilchasa Kibasrai. The Halacha follows the last one. The Yushalmi, remember, was edited hastily and earlier. The Bavli came later. The Bavli, therefore, knew every. The people, the masters of the Bavli, knew everything that the, that the master of the Yushalmi knew and much more. And you remember, the Bavli was the more polished and refined of the works. And therefore, no. The Riff explains this: if they knew everything that the Yushalmi knew and more, and they concluded leniently on this exact issue, we can defer to the Bavli because Hilchasuk Basrai. Now, Hilchasuk Basrai, the Riff explains, is not a Talmudic principle. It's never mentioned in Shas. The halacha follows the la- last one, but he says he says um, that it's it, it's accepted and, and it'll be accepted in lots of areas of halacha um, because of this basic logic that were midgets standing on the short shoulders of giants. If they knew everything that came before and concluded otherwise, we can be con- we can be confident that they knew better when they with the, those who who knew in the end. The famous uh, discussion in the Rift that has a big impact on the on the system of halacha. Uh, he has some famous students himself, included our Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, otherwise known as the author of the Kuzari, yes. uh, and the Re Migash, who himself will be the great Rebbe of Rav Maimon, and by extension, Rav Maimon's son, the Rambam. So, if you're trying to draw a straight line to the Masora, uh, these are all huge names. Um, the Rav Yehuda Levi and the Rimigash both learned in Fez, Morocco under the Rif. It, later in his life, lest you think that Argadolim had, had an easy time of it, the Rif is forced because of persecution. He has to hastily leave Morocco and he goes to Spain and he moves to, for the last 14 years of his life, he becomes Rosh Yeshiva in Lucina, in the Yeshiva there. Um, there's political intrigue and strife. Rav Sa'adjigon was not the only one to have difficult time. Uh, but when his foe dies, he leaves an orphan, and um, the Rif adopts the boy. And it's very similar, when, if you remember the story, Rav Sa'adya had done the same, adopting the grandson of, uh, of the Reish Galusa who opposed him. Um, when the Rif was dying, he has a son, and they're asking him who's going to continue the tradition, who's going to be your replacement, and he said, um, not my son, as great a man as my son is, there's a better man for the job. He's, he's, he's 26 years old, and it's, his name is Rav Yitzchak. The Rimigash will be his successor. Now, the Rif was 25 years old when Rav Haigaon died in Bavel. And as I said, he's considered the last of the Gaonim. Sometimes he himself is called a Gaon. Often he's referred to as a Rishon. And I'm going to mention three, three more early, early Rishonim that are, very, very briefly, uh, that are just on the border, um, each one completely different from the next. Um, the first is named Rav Bachia ibn Pakuda. In the 11th century, lived in Saragossa, Spain. He's a Dayan, and his major claim to fame is he's the first to write a systematic book of Musr. The oldest, I mean, you could say the Pirkei Avos is Musr, except it wasn't written as such. But this is a book of Musr. What does Musr mean? Musr means um, directed towards people to help them fix their bad midos. The name of the book is the Chovos Halavavos, one of the, one of the all-time classics in Musr. We have it on the shelves in the back of the base medrash. The Chovos, the obligations or the duties of the heart. 
That's, that's Rebaki ibn Bakuda in the 11th century. He wrote it in Arabic. Around the year 1040, the same year that the Rebbeinu Gershom died and Rashi was born, the Chovos Levavos, I can't reduce it to a, a brief summary here, but he brings a number of fundamental principles, Yesodos, and he takes an idea, beautifully organized, and under that idea, under that heading, he brings a Pasuk to support the idea, he brings a statement in Chazal, also around the idea, and then he brings a Svara, uh, an explanation, an analysis of the idea. Very clear, very straightforward. Um, he refers more than anybody else to Rav Sa'adji Gaon and his teachings as in, in the book. Um, here are two examples of some of his famous teachings. The Chobos Levavos teaches the basis of serving a Kaddish Baruch Hu. This is really profound. Is a karasatov. If you don't have gratitude, if you don't appreciate what you have in life, you can never serve Hashem. You can never be happy. You can never do much of anything. You're always gonna you're gonna walk through life with a chip on your shoulder, feeling entitled, like most people do today. Key is a hakarasatov. He teaches the mahus, the essence of a person with bitachon who sees a kaddish baruch Hu in everything in the world. <clears throat> you can see if you look on their face. He says, it's menuchas nefesh. If you see a guy who's at peace, it doesn't mean that he lacks ambition, <clears throat> but he's basically a contented, happy person. Menuchas nefesh, somebody of peace, peace, peace is in his soul. Then, um, then you've met a man who has bitachon, who sees that, kol da'avid rahman al-latav avid. Cholos will be so fundamental. I'll give you one example. Um, the chasm sofer, in his great yeshiva in Pressburg in the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the 19th century would take the Chobos Lubavos and learn it for 15, stu 15 minutes with his students every morning before saying Obashir. Yeah. Next figure, totally different, is Rav Shlomo Ibn Gaviro, sometimes called the poet laureate of the Jewish people, although I think that's a modern, secularized kind of praise. He led a very short, hard life. His dates are 1021 to 1058. We've, I, mentioned early, I mentioned a few minutes ago that Shmuel and Nagi back in Granada helped him out as a young man. Um, he wrote Piyutim, and one of his most influential works is 90 pages long. Anybody here ever write a 90-page poem? Uh, it's called... Okay, yeah, well, this is better. Yeah, Lahavdil. Kesser Malchus, the crown of, 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 of kingship, is um, actually till today in the Sephardi Nusach of Yom Kippur. They, they read it on the, evening, on, the, on the night of Yom Kippur. Kesser Malchus. It's powerful and unusual, unpredictable, totally original. There's nothing that's been written like it before or since. Imagine an individual who, and, and he breaks down the individual in the course of this pute, He's stripped of all pretense, of all, <clears throat> of all facade, and ultimately left to stand before Hashem. And if you learn it with kavana, and you, you, you say it, apparently there's no more powerful way of going into the ultimate uh, Yom Kippur <clears throat> experience, sealing your tshuva, stripped of all of your this-worldly uh, properties. <clears throat> um, yeah. It's <clears throat> remarkable in depth, in breadth. <clears throat> and <clears throat> some say it's only conceivable in the climate of Spain that was relatively open uh, for him to have written such a, an unusual work. In Ashkenaz, maybe they were much more traditional. He has another book called the Tikkun Midos Nefesh, another Musr book, the uh, fixing up the, uh, the Midos of your soul. Um, it's organized like this. Each of the five senses... He describes is it is he describes each of the five senses senses each as an instrument for potential virtues and potential vices. That's another one of those consciousness razors. Uh, really, very powerful, helpful book. Um, some say it was the it was Rav Shlomo Ibn Gaviro who wrote the um, the famous poem that we sing called Adon Olam. 
we're not quite sure of its authorship. There's, a, there's, there's some suggestions that it was much older, that it may have been written by one of the Tanaim, even Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Others say it may have been written by Rav Haigaon. Um, but many understand that it was Rav Shlomo ibn Gaviro. And um, he dies at 37 without any children. The third figure I want to mention before I want to give a discussion of anti-Semitism that's going to go viral now in the world. Um, <clears throat> I want to just briefly mention a figure named Rav Moshe Hadarshan, also from the 11th century. He was the Rosh Hashiva up in Norbonne in the south area of France, Provence. Um, he's the great-grandson of Rav, of Rav Abun Hagadol, the Kabbalist from the Ashkenazi school. His major contribution, Rav Moshe's most famous for writing what's called the Sod, which is, I guess the best description, is an anthology of Midrashim on the Chumash. And it's got a lot more in it, lots of insights, lots of, uh, there's gematrias, a lot of Kabbalistic ideas. Um, he's pretty, uh, pretty often mentioned, uh, widely mentioned by Rashi. Rashi often refers to uh, the fear of Moshe Hadarshan like this. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a major force in this period. His students include Rav Nosson ben Yechiel, who's the author of the longer, more, more elaborate dictionary called the Aruch. Um, I'm going to now leave off for a chunk of time now talking about the individuals, the, the early Rishonim. Um, when we pick back up again, we're going to talk about the Aruch, we'll talk about Rashi. Uh, but I want to take a moment to consider now, because uh, the times are changing, uh, not that anti-Semitism suddenly begins, We've, it's never let up. But um, starting in what we call, what the Goyim call the Middle Ages, starting what we call the, the period of the Bishonim, uh, it, it gets amped up several notches. <laughs> so let's, let's take a, a few minutes just to consider what is, what is this rabid anti-Jewish hatred? Where is it coming from? Um, there's certain features that become distinctive. We've talked about the Christian world and supersessionism and their feelings of being threatened by the Jews and theologically, if they can keep the Jews suppressed, the downtrodden, wandering Jew, they can claim, look, look at how despised the Jew is. That means that's because they rejected uh, the Savior and now God himself is rejecting the Jews. That was the way they like to argue it. But again, now it's, it, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take on a, a new always distressing, but a, a, a terrible, terrible veneer. Uh, I'm going to quote um, Sir Lloyd George, one of the British statesmen, who, who describes it like this. Uh, and, and these words, I think, are timeless and definitely relevant in the last thousand years or so. Jews cannot vindicate themselves in the eyes of the fanatics. If the Jews are rich, well, then, then they become victims of theft or extortion. If they're poor, then they become victims of ridicule. If the Jew takes sides in a war, it's because they wish to gain advantage from the spilling of non-Jewish blood. They can't win. If they embrace peace, it's because they're scared by nature or because they're traitors. If the Jew dwells in a foreign land, well, that's just because he's persecuted and then we expel him. And if the Jew wishes to return to his own land, he's stopped from doing so. In 1938, I'm just, I'm just riffing here a little bit, but in 1938, I'm reminded there is a less appreciated, pretty significant event called the Conference at Evian in France, where all the nations of the world, headed, spearheaded by FDR in America, uh, meet in France to decide about the Jewish question, what are we going to do with all these Jews, as the Nazis are about to exterminate them. Uh, using a Nazi word, extermination, because they reduced the Jews to, it's subhuman, uh, like so many cockroaches. And the um, upshot of the conference, I can go into great depth, I'm going to when we get there, but the upshot is nobody took anybody. And Chaim Weitzman, not a hero, uh, but smart guy with some sharp one-liners, he said, what the Avayan conference showed is that the world was divided into two places. Um, the Jews where the, the places where the Jews were no longer welcome and the places where nobody wanted to welcome the Jews well, nobody would let the Jews in you know, that, those are the options left open to the Jews and that's going to be we're going to find expulsion after expulsion after expulsion and we are never at peace go look at the Avayan conference and look what America did then no but you find that America you're right somewhat somewhat but pathetic. 
relative to what they could and their numbers, they took a paltry few. And only because of the efforts of some valiant B'nai uh, Taira and the Bergson group uh, did they open up a little bit more, maybe taking as much as 100,000. You mentioned the number 100,000 in the scheme of the millions. It's almost, it's almost an, it's pathetic. Also, why do you think time wasted? Why did what? Why is time wasted not a hero? Well, you have to stay tuned, won't you? Just recently, right after uh, what happened in France, the UN decided to have a uh, their first anti-Semitism. Yeah, yeah. And and no country showed up. It was a couple countries showed up. It was America, France, England. Not on the world's agenda. Um, back in the fourth century, one of the many councils of the Christian Church was the Nicaea Council. Um, one of their rulings had long-term ramifications and will play a major role in the ongoing anti-Semitism. They prohibit usury, meaning interest. Christians are not allowed to charge interest to other Christians. Well, that was a big deal. That had a big impact. Any kind of society, any economic theory depends on commerce. You need capital investment. There's no venture without some kind of investor lending money, and you're not gonna lend money unless you get interest. So the economy stagnates, any economy stagnates without, without some potential uh, uh, investment. So um, the church said no. And in the dark ages and certainly the medieval times in Europe, the mindset, I'm gonna refer to this again, was Dante's Inferno. You're going to be eternally condemned. You're going to burn and, 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 and burn, and, and Satan's going to torture you. And people believed that, took that quite literally. And so when the church said it, the Christian world generally didn't charge an interest. And their economies didn't stagnate because they turned to the Jews. The Jews then became the obvious middle law, middlemen. Um, they were anyway going to eternal uh, damnation, as the Christians saw it, to begin with. So they now make all business dealings possible by becoming lenders, bankers, middlemen, collectors, tax collectors. Okay, so as we were anyway forced off the land as harsh tax laws made Jews make, make, make agrarian life, uh, farm life less tenable for Jews, Jews took the jobs they could get. And they became, they took these roles. Now, think about these roles, these roles are not the most popular people on the block. The collector is a despised individual. They're societal leeches because they're blamed for their, even though they're only collecting on behalf of the church and the, and, and the government anyway, but they forget the government, they forget the church, and all they, all they know is that the Jews coming around to, uh, to, to collect money, um, especially as interest accrues, and when interest gets too overwhelming, people go bankrupt. This role, this job that Jews traditionally had, especially starting in the Middle Ages, is going to lead to the Jewish caricature of the, well, Shakespeare has it as Shylock, and, uh, but not just Shylock, the, the hook-nosed Jews who was money-grubbing, um, the verb to juice somebody comes out of this experience uh, that we're all about money-making and so on, uh, to get somebody out, out, of their, out of their possessions will emerge. Um, all as a result of this. This is a major facet in emerging anti-Semitism. Another facet, Jews are smart. We've always been smart. We're the people of the book, as the Muslims call us. Um, Torah does that. Look at the sixth chapter of Pirkei Avos and the 48 things that Torah gives you. Torah makes you smarter. You can start a simple person. You can start a simple-minded person. And if you immerse yourself in learning and you really commit yourself to it, you will improve your IQ. The Nitziv of Elohim was, by his own admission, sub-average. And it became Gadolador. Torah has a mystical impact on the, on the, on the mental faculties. So I want to assert that we had all that. It's part of our, if not genetic makeup, it's part of our <laughs> pedigree at least. It was these imbued in us generation after generation. And so what you're witnessing, not just in Albert Einstein, but honestly, the disproportionate number of Jews who excel in virtually every area, except perhaps arguably athletics, uh, in the world is due to this culture of, with an emphasis on education, but also an innate intellectual curiosity. Minalan, we're always asking in the Gemara. 
that after a while, or sitting at the Pesach Seder, even more assimilated Jews, sitting around where you get you get a candy when you ask Manish Tana, when you're asked a question because you're taught from the youngest age, ask, understand, probe, quest. When you um, develop that kind of intellectual curiosity, it leads to, after a while, uh, an, an, uh, an intelligence. And in other societies, the Muslim world, not that it lacks for an intelligent, sophisticated elite, because Islam can be very, very sophisticated and that's higher levels, but as I mentioned when we learned about Islam, there's no built-in requirement for the average Muslim to be a learned person. Learning is secondary. So it's not an intellectually based culture, the Arab cultures, as they, as they are. Not that you can't find immensely smart people or talented people, but as a whole, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it, it's not conducive for the entire nation uh, to be that way. Whereas Torah is an obligation, Kesar Torah is, is waiting for every Jew to reach out and grab it. And what you see then in the disproportionate impact the Jews have had throughout the world, including till today, I think is a result of this. Go ahead, Ilan. No, I was gonna say, like, what you just said, alongside that, education is like one of the fundamental values. Absolutely, it's central to us. And when you're not Torah, but you get that idea viewed in you, and then you, you say, well, okay, Ivy League then, or something, right? Or MIT, or go, you know, use your, your innate cerebral uh, capacities for something. So the fact that that was true and understood by the society at large, especially the Christian society, the society will come to look for Jews for progress, for advancing society. And the Jews will pay, again, play a disproportionate role in doing so. We're going to hear of many names in the, in the course of the next thousand years. Uh, there's going to be massive change in the world. And the Jews, we find, are at the forefront of almost every change in almost every field. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, now, the church is threatened by change, the church being hyper-conservative and not very uh, self-confident, having a deep-seated uh, deep insecurity, insecurity. That will be reflected very famously, we'll, we'll, we'll learn about this, when um, radicals within the church, people like Galileo and Copernicus, challenge deep-seated church assumptions about whether the world was round or flat and other, other such fundamentals, um, so, you know, the church didn't allow, and they put these guys into harem, they put them into excommunication, um, they, they, they were not conducive to creativity within their midst, but they'll turn to the Jews, who anyway, again, they're, they're, they're lost, they don't have eternity anyway, the Jews will be at the cutting edge of much of development, they'll step into the void, in thought, in technology, it'll almost be the way I, I look at it, it's almost like the Jew became the church's equivalent to the Shabbos Goy. What the church didn't allow their own members to become, who turned to the Jew for that? He's going to go. He's going to go and have eternal damnation anyway. So at least he could be the guy out there doing, uh, you know, the cutting edge of technology. Another factor: Jews related prosper. Some of them start to do very well, not just uh, financially. We'll find Rabbeinu Tam, one of the wealthiest Jews of all time. But um, another Baltosavos by the name of Rav Moshe of Kuchi, who comes from the 13th century. His great book, um, we see a lot in, these, in the Ein Mishpat, he wrote the Smag, the Sefer Mitzvot Gidolos, one of the great Rishonim. So he was knighted, Sir Mosh, Moshe of Kuchi. Can you believe that? Sir Moshe was one of our Rishonim. Uh, and that's not always a good thing. The non-Jews resent prominent Jews. Till today, I remember this is one of my favorite modern lines. In 2010, when one of, when one of the three out of nine current Supreme Court Jewish just, justices was being grilled, uh, you know, in, in the, in the post-racist society that the 2000s are supposedly, supposedly are, one of the senators asked Elena, Kag Elena's pronounced Elena Kagan, um, where, what do you do on the night of 24th of December? What kind of question? It's so obviously alluding to her Jewish roots and so on. So she, very sharp lady, doesn't, doesn't miss a beat. So she says, I'll quote it, it's really, it's really a great line. She said, probably like most Jews, I was eating at a Chinese restaurant. Uh, good, good comeback. But, you know, like they don't, they're not so, it would be, the subtext of the question is, we're not so happy to have so many Jews in the Supreme Court. Yeah, right. What is going on? And, and, and by the way, I have, in, all, in my whole year on Jews in Power, I break that down, disproportionate representation of Jews. And the non-Jews aren't so happy about that. And they'll convert that, the, you know, Jews are successful traders and merchants like we were in the Muslim society. Um, 
they form, because they're excluded from the non-Jewish societies, so then the Jews have no choice, they're going to form their own businesses, their own networks. Remember we said they're uniquely suited to have an international network because they are a diaspora. There is no diaspora in the world. No na a nation, unlike the Jews, a nation in the world is only a nation as far as they're living together. The minute they're broken up, they don't identify with one another. Um, that's not true today. The world has become so, so mobile today. You have a dynamic where, let's say, India nationals now live around the world and they talk about the Indian diaspora kind of imitating the Jews maybe you could have that today but in, through most of history only the Jews identified as having a diaspora because we all, only only Torah keeps us interconnected on the way that uh, on the level that, that we are um, and so having this immense network and international uh, you know business enterprise leads people to the myth that there's an international Jewish conspiracy trying to take over the world, trying to squeeze the money out of the world. Because look at all those tax-collecting tax Jews. And um, this also is leading towards a certain brand of anti-Semitism. Um, as early as in the, as, as, as Baishani is in the Second Temple period, the non-Jews realize that um, they can get us where it hurts. They can ban our books. They can ban our Holy Torah. Then maybe they could actually threatened Jewish existence. Josephus wrote in that period, in one village, a soldier found a copy of the sacred law, tore the book into pieces and flung it into the fire. That's an early example of something that we're going to find increasingly prevalent in the Middle Ages, that um, they started burning our books. But the anti-Semitism will emerge. It'll be harsh. It'll be unforgiving. It'll include the following at the risk of overwhelming you. Uh, I'm overwhelmed myself by considering all this. I think it's worth considering what did they do to us over time? It included the following. Certainly decrees against Torah, against observance of mitzvahs. That mitzvahs, that goes without saying. Blood libels are going to start to emerge. I'll tell stories of each of these. Uh, blood libels, they will steal our property. Uh, expropriation, they like to euphemize, use a euphemism. There'll be inquisitions where they'll grill us to see what our loyalties are. There'll be lies, calumnies, crusades, pogroms, mass murders, attempted genocide. Uh, Jews have been expelled from almost every single country where we found ourselves. Not exactly uh, conducive to great stability. Um, in, two in, in the year 250, we were ex exiled from Carthage, 415 from Alexandria, 612 from Spain under the Visigoths. 855 from Italy, 1290 from England. I'm doing this almost like a collage to bombard you, but also to paint a mural. Everywhere in the world. I mean, I'm leaving out nobody. 1290 England, 1306, and then later in 1394, all the Jews of France were exiled, expelled. 1348 from Switzerland and Alsace. 1349, 1360 from Hungary, 1421 from Austria. Uh, throughout Germany, throughout the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries, nothing was safe in Germany. 1455 from Lithuania, 1492, guess where? Spain, 1497, Portugal, 1582, Netherlands. Uh, 1648 and 49, the Smolensky massacres around Ukraine and Galicia. 1744-45, Bohemia, Moravia, 1939 to 1945, the extermination of almost six million Jews across continental Europe and beyond. Um, Jews are second-class citizens already back in the 7th century in Arab countries, uh, but the Arab countries are, also know their own kind of anti-Semitism. There'll be violent outbreaks uh, throughout history. They'll climax in the year 1948, uh, and then again in 67. 600,000 Jews are forced to flee Algeria, Egypt, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and much of the Arab world. There's no place that's safe in the world, not Eretz Israel, not, not abroad, when it comes to anti-Semitism. Um, Thursday, really on the heels of talking about anti-Semitism, we're going to talk about the most, um, one, of the, one of the most horrific events of anti-Semitism, most savage events of anti-Semitism, the outbreak of what's called the First Crusade and the Crusaders, um, and what leads to it and, and the, the, the havoc that they, uh, that, they, that they cause across the world, and particularly for the Jewish people.